0: you can see multiple, multiple areas where that diverse user experience just unintentionally gets edited out. And so the first piece is the intentional element, but then even uh, taking that a step further, you also have to read the tea leaves. You know, when we look at this country and how it's changing, and you think about the economic buying power just in Black and Latinx communities, and, and the fact that there'll be a majority of the population, you're looking at 2030. You've really got to change your strategy. You've really got to think about, you know, the way that you're going to get traction with the, the most people in the population is actually in a more diverse approach.
1: Welcome to the In On Health podcast. I'm your host Kapama Yopala, and I go by KP. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Health. In today's episode, I speak with Dr. Monique Smith. She is a Harvard-trained emergency room physician and the founding executive director of Health Designed at Emory University. This is an organization working with digital health innovators to develop solutions that are intentional in their design and impact for diverse multicultural populations. Dr. Smith shares important personal and professional insights on how to ensure that digital health innovations are inclusive for a wide range of people in the U.S. I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I am very pleased to have my good friend, Dr. Monique Smith on the In On Health podcast today. She's the founding executive director of health design at Emory University, and also an ER doc at Grady Health System out in Atlanta. Thank you so much uh, for joining us, Monique.
0: Thanks for having me KP, pleasure as always.
1: Great, you've been doing so much interesting work, not just here in the US, but also globally. And we met really at first through our passion for global health and things that we were looking to do out in African countries. And then not too long after that, we started partnering in the US. So it's been really great to uh, partner with you on, on both sides of the pond. To get us started, I wanted to just have you share with our listeners a little bit about you. You're a medical doctor, a public health practitioner. Tell us about you, your background, and and what led you into clinical medicine and public health.
0: Well, you know, we all have some kind of origin story, and mine certainly comes from, you know, my parents moving to the States a few years before I was born. Um, You know, they were immigrants from Jamaica, and they settled here in the Atlanta area, um, which is where I grew up. We as kids had a very clear awareness of not only kind of being immigrants, of what, but what that immigrant experience meant. And so that was often being surrounded by conversations and conversations that were so firmly rooted in what was going on from an economic development perspective. I have such a clear memory of bananas. I think it must have been about a decade where people were talking about banana trades. Every, you know, party, Jamaican party that was held, right. every time my parents sat on somebody's couch. And what they were talking about was all of these different forces that led to something as simple as banana that sometimes has a Chiquita sticker, sometimes doesn't, um, being sold and not sold in different types of markets. And for me, that sparked this really interesting thought of, well, how is it that, you know, something as simple as bananas can have such a phenomenal impact on a country, its people, its way of being, living and sustaining? Um, And really made me think a lot about my place in the world. So you know, by the time I ended up in college, you know, I naturally gravitated towards anthropology. You know, this idea of you know how do we understand different cultures and people, and how do we understand our own relationship to it. You know, part of it's my own kind of trying to understand myself as being a you know Jamaican, both Jamaican and American, and how I fit into the world, but then starting to understand it through other populations and cultures. And the specific splice that I loved is thinking about healthcare because if you think about it. There's no more intimate way of understanding a people, a culture, a community than the way they see about other people, the way that they practice health, the way they practice well-being. Um, So, you know, that that's kind of what led me down my road, this very kind of winding road of curiosity, um, you know, that mixes both, you know, this idea of health and well-being, but also this idea of how do you how do you position all that in terms of how we live in society with other people?
1: Right. And so when you did your undergrad at Harvard, if I'm not mistaken, and sounds like, you know, you were really interested in anthropology as a connection point of understanding these kind of cross-discipline type of dynamics, so I can kind of hear that from you. Did you know when you went into Harvard that you wanted to go to medical school? Is that on your mind, or or did when did that happen?
0: That's a great question. I'm sure it was on my parents' mind,
1: that's for sure. <laughs> Of course, immigrant <laughs> parents become a lawyer or a doctor.
0: That's right, that's right. So, I mean, that was very clear. Like, There's no way I was going to get away with coming home and telling my mom that I declared anthropology as a major. Right. My friend, I didn't get away with that. She said, what are you doing? You know, that is not a job. That's not a profession. Um, <laughs> but she was still a little relieved because she realized I was still pre-med. So that part could never drop. Right. Uh, right. I, I had to be able to. <laughs> someone had to pay the bills right, for me to actually go to school. <laughs> so we uh, we made a compromise in which I remained pre-med. Um, but I like went down this path of anthropology, which was very foreign and different for my family. It's a family of engineers, you know, I had a much larger vision of how I might want to have impact in this world. And for me, that vision laid at the intersection of so many things, right? You know, as an emergency physician, I get to hear people's stories one-on-one every day. And yes, you know, I get to provide care in the context of what we can do within a hospital. But so much of that is understanding who people are and where they're coming from. But I get to take that then and then use that in my practice as a practitioner of public health, a practitioner of health systems redesign and to really think through how do we make systems better for people. There's no job description out there like that. There's no singular path that will lead you down that, you know, into that space. It's more just remaining fundamentally curious and aligned with what your values are.
1: Tell me, so you had, you know, while you're doing medical school and you're embedded in the U.S. healthcare system and then deciding to become an ER doc and really interfacing with a lot of underserved populations and all kinds of Of dynamics there. You also have this other part of your experience working in places like India and clearly reconnecting to Jamaica. Tell me what some of the through line has been for you looking at kind of cross-cultural dynamics around underserved populations and and the type of people that you've been working with um, both clinically and in public health contexts.
0: You know, great question. You know, the fact of the matter is that, you know, all around the globe, you share so much in common you know, it's so easy for us to kind of categorize ourselves as, you know, living in a country where we have all the resources, living in a country where we have, you know, under-resourced. But the fact of the matter is we're all facing the same types of problems. The way that we approach it, those are nuanced. Nuanced by kind of, you know, the social structures and, you know, the the things that we have culturally um, that are embedded. But the problems aren't that much different. You know, I'll give you a really great example um, that really came home in the last year or so. When I was working in India, you know, about a decade ago, we were looking at the National Human Health Mission and how they were deploying these, you know, pockets of money to really strengthen the health systems and what was going on, um, you know, in, you know, rural clinics like across the country. Um, and so I had the opportunity to go in and visit very specific clinics. And, you know, one of the things that um, we came across was, you know, the fact that resources aren't the same, right? Um, you know, there was a room that mean they didn't want us to see. And part of the reason why they didn't want us to see is because they were thinking creatively about how to use what they had. And it was something as simple as as gloves, something that as an emergency physician, you know, three years ago, I would come in and out of a room, use three, five pairs of gloves, you know, not even give a thought to it. Um, But, you know, in that room, they'd wash the gloves to reuse them, right? You know, now fast forward to here we are in the middle of the COVID pandemic. And that's not a different reality, you know, from what we've seen across the U.S. We've had to reuse masks. We've had to really kind of think about how we use resources. You know, and, and fundamentally, we're all facing the same sorts of challenges. Um, you know, we're all thinking about our supply chains. We're all thinking about whether or not we have the people to meet the demand. We're all thinking about access, the way that people are actually able to get the sort of care that they need when they need it. And, you know, there are different tweaks here and there of, of how we provide that and the systems that offer that. But it's the same sort of concepts that we're all trying to tackle. You know, whether we're sitting, you know, here for us, and you know, Denver and Atlanta, or whether we're sitting in Nairobi or London or you know in Delhi, wherever we are, um, they're the same sorts of issues that we're facing.
1: Mm-hmm. No, that's um, so true. So I want to ask you this: You're the founding executive director of Health Designed at Emory University. Um, tell me more about why you founded that organization and what you guys are up to.
0: Yeah, you know, this is certainly um, a passion project for me. You know, I. Um, Moved to the Bay Area um, in like 2013 ish, and prior to that, had spent you know a lot of time in the global health space, um, and was much more attached to kind of how you think about things from a, a public health perspective. And in moving to the Bay, I found myself in an uncomfortable space. I suddenly didn't have you know my natural you know threads of how I would do work in the healthcare space, thinking of healthcare systems, thinking about how technology enabled them. But here I was in the middle of Silicon Valley, where certainly people were thinking about how technology enabled care. Um, And so for me, the first pivot was one from a true and true kind of public health anthropology lens to one where, you know, as we would say, you know, public health terms, the private sector um, Mm -hmm. is tackling health issues. Right. Um, And so at that point, I got very interested in the digital health space. I um, was fortunate to work with a you know a set of companies working with, on some really interesting issues such as tackling you know care for seniors um in a technical way thinking about you know the field of digital vaccines and how you really tackle chronic disease such as diabetes and obesity in kids um and then eventually thinking through how you use telemedicine and really use that to you know turn the tide on things such as maternal outcomes particularly for women of color um, and in those experiences the things that excited me the most um, was working with founders to think about how you go from idea to creating something that lives and impacts people in their lives. And and it's something that's part of a system, not just kind of a single point solution, not just, you know, a one-off, but something that exists within this larger context. And I'll tell you, this is where it goes back to global health, right? Because I mean, you know that we think about disease verticals. You think about HIV, TB, malaria, but what does it have to do with an entire healthcare system and the supply chain for that healthcare system, the human resourcing for that healthcare system? All of those elements, and so in a very similar way, I came to the same conclusion around digital health. Well, how does digital health fit into how an individual experiences all of healthcare across their entire you know care journey, their experience? Um, and you know, I was really fortunate that at the time, you know, um, I had the opportunity to talk to some folks at Emory and realize that they were really thinking through how innovation could happen in, in healthcare from a leadership perspective, and kind of just that alignment of, of wanting to really on the lead from that perspective. You know, I was able to, you know, pitch the idea of, of help Designed um, and we were able to launch it in January of last year. We didn't know that COVID was already on our shores and in the horizon, right. which created a few additional pivots after that, but you know, it was kind of a dream come true in that I was going to have the opportunity to really think through how you, how you think through a, a really beautiful healthcare experience. Um, but doing doing it from the inside of the healthcare system, but with the opportunity to leverage all the best of what's happening um, amongst innovators, uh, amongst founders, amongst startups, et cetera, and pulling that together for individuals, patients who ultimately want to see about their health and well being.
1: Yeah, no, that's 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 amazing, and and we'll get into this a little bit more. But also, you are a practicing ER doc, so you are on a regular basis interfacing with people in the healthcare system and all the different challenges that are there. So I suspect, you know, we are also partners and we benefit from that advice from you. But like being able to bring some of that grounding of like how these innovations really become ultimately usable by people, right? Because we want to embed them in the system, but also they, you know, if we think about like users, like how do we design for everybody? Um, so you have this, this concept called equitable tech-enabled care, if I've said that correctly. Is that right? That's it. You got it. Can you talk to me a bit more about this concept and how it relates to health equity and digital inclusion? Absolutely.
0: You know, I think the first time I really started thinking about this um, was when my co-founder and I were building a telemedicine company, Culture care. Um, And we were really invested in this idea of making sure that people had comfort and trust in using virtual care. And one of the areas that we were hearing um, that people just didn't have comfort and trust around was actually in in-person care, uh, specifically women of color. Um, and this was kind of you know in the Bay Areas and around 2016, 17, um, just not feeling like they were being heard. Time and time again, I'd have people pinging me on my phone saying, "You know, hey, you know, do you have a doctor of color that I can speak to?" I've had this interaction with the healthcare system. I don't feel like I'm being heard or treated appropriately. I'm worried that I'm going to have a bad outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and so wanting to create a platform that would enable that. But also that in just the process of, of going through that, you look around at the landscape. You look around about what else is going on. And one of the things that you see that's missing is this idea of, yes, there are all these successful technologies that are connecting people and things, but who are they missing? Where do they not have traction? You know, that's not a present part of the conversation, you know? Um, he- When you you think about that, you've got to think about, you know, the digital divide for sure. You've got to think about the fact that, you know, broadband doesn't exist in every home. You know, there are, you know, stats from, um, you know, last year that showed, what is it, 25% of Hispanic communities and 23% of Black communities don't have broadcasts at home. They are, you know, dependent on their smartphones, right? What does that mean? And, you know, even beyond that, you've got to think about the rural and urban divide and what it takes to actually access a healthcare system. And then you've got to think about what makes you feel comfortable. You know, when I pick up my phone and log onto an app, what is it that makes that experience for me one in which I feel like I can trust it, you know, particularly in this virtual age, you know, and so that becomes an even more fundamental barrier, you know, particularly for communities that have typically been marginalized and don't trust the healthcare system as a whole. Um, So how do you design around that? So when we're talking about technology enabling access, enabling care, being a way to really um, make sure that no one's left behind, we have to be very intentional about that and place equity in front of that. And that's where we come up with equitable technology and care. And I'll tell you, as someone who trained as a physician, one of the things that you know is that your benchmarks, those aren't the benchmarks for marginalized communities. You know, right. when you think about how we dose medications, um, you know, our kind of benchmark for that is a 70 kilogram white male, right? And that's mm-hmm. the, the concept that pervades across medicine and frankly, across our entire healthcare system. So how do we design beyond that to make it a way that's much more inclusive and intentional?
1: Right, so tell me more about the process. I mean, you're a very creative person. And I mean, look, in Silicon Valley speak, you know, this is common practice, like designing with your user in mind, right? Companies like IDEO have been out there talking about this. So my question to you is, why isn't that happening more broadly in the populations that we're talking about, BIPOC, diverse populations? Because the concept of this type of design approach and process is there and it's being used by Silicon Valley and innovators. So maybe you can talk a bit about how you see the gap and then what type of processes you are using to support people in in this design process to be more inclusive.
0: So in an optimistic world, you imagine that every founder thinks of all of their users, right? They want to attract every single customer they can. But the fact of the matter is, they're going to use their customer discovery initially to place that hits home. Because most founders, you know, what they're, what they're producing and creating is something that they themselves would want to use. And so often those are the first voices that get incorporated in the design phase. If they're forward and thinking about their users, it's a first step. Right. But even more so, you've got to think about the investors that they're then going to go pitch that to so that they don't have to bootstrap it and who they are and what they look like and what stories they're gonna to wanna to tell to them, right? Um, and so in that process, you can see multiple, multiple areas where that diverse user experience unintentionally gets edited out. And so the first piece is the intentional element, right? You know, The intentional element of understanding that, you know, one, you know, if you wanna have traction across a broad user base, you've gotta understand what the pain points are from that user base's perspective. But then even uh, taking that a step further, you also have to read the tea leaves. You know, when we look at this country and how it's changing and you think about the economic buying power just in Black and Latinx communities, and, and the fact that there'll be a majority of the population when you're know, looking at 2030, you've really got to change your strategy. You've really got to think about, you know, the way that you're going to get traction with the, the most people in the population is actually in a more diverse approach. Um, so, you know, I think those are two of the big elements. And, you know, one of the things that I absolutely love about IDEO is that they embrace design thinking. And your design thinking is this just beautiful methodology that lives in, the inter- in, lives in the intersection of multiple methodologies, right? Like it brings in a little bit of anthro, it brings in a little bit of business practices, it brings in a little bit of, you know, the, the basic elements of how you think about moving and thinking creatively about a, a problem um, and defining it and then moving towards a solution, but in a way that's iterative, those right. feedback loops of systems thinking, right? Um, but if you're doing that and doing that in a bubble that doesn't think about a larger system of people that isn't inclusive then you're never going to design products, you're never going to design services that are really inclusive.
1: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And so I think, and it's interesting, because I think you've hit on a really important insight here that, you know, is getting talked about more and more about, you know, wanting to invest in a more diverse cadre of founders, right, which can lead to more innovations that Support the broader population because those founders come from these different backgrounds So like you're saying if the founders are diverse They're inherently going to develop new and innovative solutions that match the population, right? So there is some movement in that space. I mean, I think but you've mentioned something that's interesting in that You know, there's a business case is what I hear you saying. What you're really saying is the majority population is going to be diverse and so for any innovation to be scalable, sustainable, transformational, it needs to resonate with diverse populations. But I think the historical mindset has been that health equity or serving diverse populations is charity. It's, it's for nonprofit work or it's Medicaid, but there's no real business case. So I just want to make sure that's what I'm hearing, because I, I think that this is a really important point you're making that doesn't get talked about explicitly enough.
0: That's absolutely right. And I'll give you two different examples. One is a perspective of, as a founder and the other now is a perspective of, you know, um, an executive director sitting inside of healthcare system. So, you know, as a founder, when we um, were talking about Culture Care, a telemedicine platform that connects Black women with physicians, um, you know, people automatically reduce that to, right, so you're going through the Medicaid population. Um, and, you know, that's not it. <laughs> you right. know, when you look at maternal outcomes in this country, it doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor, you got 10 degrees from Harvard or not, you are, you know, not in a good position, let me put it halfway, um, to have healthy outcomes for you and baby as compared to, you know, not even just your white counterparts, all counterparts, right? Right. Um, as a Black woman. Yeah. As a Black woman. And there's something in that, right? But the fact that that's suddenly reduced to this is a Medicaid play, that's where it's not true, understanding that there is diversity, right, not just diversity from a racial and ethnic perspective, but there's also diversity in, you know, how the people's level of resources, right, um, and understanding that is, is a key component. And now also kind of from the healthcare system perspective, I'll tell you that there are often vendors um, that, you know, we're vetting. Um, and they're very simple questions that we have about traction. Who's actually using, like, built? Mm-hmm. Very simple questions about, well, did you account for the fact that you're going to be dealing with a diverse population? It's going to be applied across a diverse population that, you know, hadn't been accounted for. You know, particularly in the area of artificial intelligence, for example. There was a project that we undertook, um, you know, pretty early in the pandemic where we were thinking about measuring um, temperature, as well as your oxygen levels, all from visual and facial recognition, right? right. Um, and, you know, one of the challenges that we had was making sure that, you know, we had a training database of faces that had enough diversity in skin tone. Um, fast forward a year later, and, you know, I'm talking to a vendor like, hey, you know, we're partnering with this um, you know great startup that's also looking at facial recognition. had to do the same things, you know, thinking about vital signs, right? Right. And in in that pointed question of what did the training set look like? What did the faces look like that they trained them on? You know, first of all, no one knew. There was not diversity in those faces, which means that you're then further embedding all of these systems that, you know, are not able to treat in the best way people of color, right? Because that's what we're talking about. So, you know, it, it's it's across the board. It's across the board accounting for it, not only design, but also accounting for it in understanding, you know, when you're talking about this population, when you're talking about people of color, you're not just talking about, you know, one slice uh, and really thinking about the diversity within that as well.
1: Right. And really, you're talking about implicit bias. And I think what is inside of that concept is that it's implicit, right? So it's not intentional. It's not adversarial, but... By virtue of lack of diversity in the room, and diverse teams are always going to produce better products than non-diverse teams. They're going to produce better solutions. But by lack of that, then it leads into these unintended consequences that end up leaving out swaths of the population from benefiting.
0: That's exactly it.
1: Yeah. No. Um. So tell me more about how how you how do you see that, and and how does health designed like, how are you looking to work with innovators to work through that and, 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 and improve that situation?
0: Right. So, I mean, it's, it's really then going back to basics. You know, I had a revolutionary moment probably when I was in college where you think about what we think is common sense, right? What is it common sense to design for? And I think, one, as Health Design, you know, we are certainly very much about working, you know, with innovators, with established industry as well, um, and understanding how they've designed things and making sure that their common sense matches our common sense, meaning that it is designing for a diverse population rather than a singular persona, right? And so that's the first element. And we do that within kind of this space of really wanting to make acute care effortless and bring equity to well-being. You know, there is a lot within that frame, Um, a lot in terms of thinking about how people come into healthcare systems from the first moment that they have symptoms, how they kind of approach us through a digital front door to really thinking about how we're more responsive from an acute care
1: perspective. Can you define acute care for some people that may not know what that means?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think if I'm an individual who has a healthcare problem and I need to see a provider, I'm defining that as acute, Um, you know, as opposed to emergency care, which is the sort of thing that can only happen in an emergency department, such as, you know, life-saving you know care. Essentially, you know, your heart has stopped. You need, you know, things to help you live and breathe and do other things. And I'll tell you, in emergency departments, we see the whole gamut. We see, you know, we see acute as defined by people and how they feel it um, to those emergent things, right? And I think there's been this, 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 um, this trope within medicine where physicians are the ones and healthcare systems are the ones that are defining what are true emergencies. But what we are doing as a, as a design innovation center is thinking about how do patients think about that? In terms of my experience, if I think that there's a need right now, that's acute. Um, but then how do I meet that need as a healthcare system? You know, mm-hmm. maybe that's not in my emergency department. Maybe that's through a virtual visit. Maybe that's through providing you access to different types of resources you didn't know that you had. Um, you know, and that's one of the ways in which we, you know, love kind of thinking through partnership with you guys at Inon. In terms of the ability um, to really have access to people in an omnichannel approach using a mobile-first platform in order to do that so that people know where to go and what's a trusted resource around their health care, around their well-being.
1: Mm-hmm. No, 100%. We've really um appreciated and valued the partnership with Health Designed. And for those listening in, um, in On Health, our company has partnered with Health Designed on COVID response in Atlanta Metro for, well, going on about a year. First, it was testing. And then we worked on, on VAX access. But really with this intentionality of, of communities of color and specifically black people in Atlanta Metro who are dying at significantly disproportional rates to everyone else in the area. Um, So we've been partnering on that. Tell me this, Monique, like as we're coming out of COVID in a way, I'll just put it that way, we're coming out of COVID in a way and, and health equity has been discussed because of the disproportionate racial inequities and socioeconomic inequities in terms of how the pandemic's played out. What happens next? Like how do you see this conversation of health equity and where the real opportunities are for this to be lasting, not just another set of buzzwords that people talked about for a year and then and then we move on?
0: Right. You know, I think we've laid really great groundwork, right? Um, you know, what COVID did is it ripped the band-aid off and allowed us to see that, you know, there's a disproportionate burden of chronic disease. There's a disproportionate burden in terms of lack of access to healthcare and healthcare systems, um, and also lack of trust, right? And how do we solve for those things? So you know, the opportunity here is still aligned. You know, to be a little bit of a capitalist for just one brief second. You know, when you think about how much it costs to be sick in this country, um, and not just to the individual, but you know, when you think about it as a, as a community, as a system. Um, that's not a benefit to anybody, you know? So for, we're actually seeing an alignment here Mm -hmm. where, you know, the cost to have have communities not be well is one that we should all be on board with, you know? Um, And so the ability to solve for that in a very meaningful way um, is something that we should all be after. And I'll give you a specific example here is that when you think about digital health solutions that are very specifically solving for people who, access healthcare systems the most, which are people who usually are the sickest, who then is disproportionately then folks, people who suffer from chronic diseases. And we just talked about how we ripped the bandaid off and understood that's disproportionately in um, underserved communities that typically are Black, Latinx, Native American. Uh, You know, you're thinking about that as that's an opportunity, right? Um, Because that's what everyone's trying to solve for. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's really realizing that opportunity now that we've ripped the bandaid off and continue to move towards that target.
1: Okay. And are there any specific areas within what's commonly being defined as health equity that you see a lot of opportunity? And also, I know I didn't ask this, but I I should, like, how do you define health equity?
0: So, you know, there are some really great academic definitions of health equity out there. But I'll tell you, for me, it's probably defined by some very specific people that I've had the fortune of coming across and who've taught me. Um, the first is a woman um, who's probably in her 30s who'd been diagnosed with HIV about 10 years ago, who I met in Jamaica when I was doing thesis research around 2005. Um, you know, I had all these great questions to ask her about, you know, you know what it meant to be living with HIV and how, um, you know, what that meant from a public health perspective and stigma and really academic. Um, and at the end of it, I you know, opened it up, and said, is there anything else you want to tell me? She's like, well you didn't ask anything about, you know, how I'm living. You know, the fact of, you know, how am I going to, you know, make food for my family? How am I going to get around? When you can do something about that, then come back and talk to me, right? Um, So that was the the first piece that really made me start thinking about, Mm. well, okay, equity is not just about, you know, those outcomes we look at in terms of who has this disease or that disease, but it's also about how they live and where they're living, right? And um, you think about that certainly in cities like Atlanta, and you can see you know, a 10-year life difference across five miles, right? And those, Atlanta's a pre-segregated city. And those two different cities I'm talking about of Buckhead and Bankhead, one is predominantly white and one's predominantly Black. Um, and there's a lot that we know about how cities and communities have been built in terms of what decisions have been made about, you know, what sorts of Um, resources, whether it's, you know, food stores, whether it's, you know, buildings for economy, whether it's, you know, building a highway um, that then impacts the environment. Those are all elements that roll up into how we're actually able to live healthy lifestyles. The second example is a a patient um, who I came across during residency um, who came in as a trauma activation. What that means is there's, you know, Amulets comes in, there's all this chaos, all this confusion, there's all this energy. Uh, it's, you know, someone who's been in a car accident, you hit 10 cars, you get the story before you even meet the person, right? And right. this automatic placement of the system of that person in a bucket. And once all the drama was over, the patient had been placed in a, a separate room. And you know, he was then identified as someone who caused trouble. This is like a black male in his late 20s, living in Oakland. Um And, you know, the nurse is like, I can't do anything else with him. He's such a troublemaker. um And I went to go talk to him. I'm like, hey, what's up? What's going on? And he's like, well, look at this room. My bed's not made. Every time anyone interacts with me, it's not with respect. It, you know, I can tell that because of the way I came into this system, no one's going to take the best care of me, right? So that's Mm. the second piece, right? The automatic assumptions that we place on people when we interact with them and the ability for them to get appropriate care because of those, you know, embedded cultural ideas that we have about people moving beyond that. That's part of health equity. And the final one is a really personal story. Um, It's my own story of childbirth. You know, I am a highly educated physician. I, you know, as part of my training had to, you know, assist women with their delivery. So I know what happens. In you know a delivery room, um, and I knew when it was going very very wrong for me. Um, and even before that, I had been very intentional about you know selecting one of my very good friends who is an obstetrician and gynecologist. It's um, a woman of color, um, and at the time she had actually just had surgery um, for her own medical problems. So she was in the room with me as a bystander as well, um, in a hospital where she practiced. And as we both watched, you know, the way in which my, my pain was underrated to the extent that when I had to have an emergency C-section, my epidural no longer worked. I could stand up and walk, which is something oh, no. that shouldn't happen when you have yeah. an epidural. And, you know, your baby needs to come out. Right. And I had many other complications as well. Um, and realizing that there's a near miss in there. And I was really fortunate. I was really fortunate to be able to advocate for myself to have a trained obstetrician gynecologist as a layperson at my bedside. But also then in that to, for both of us to realize how voiceless we were, despite both being highly trained physicians in a system that doesn't necessarily think of you in the same way because of what I just talked about in the second example, where there are automatic assumptions and the ways that we've practiced medicine that don't account for the ways, the diverse ways in which people experience healthcare. And the diverse outcomes that we see and how much risk we know exists just by, you know, being a Black woman that's pregnant
1: in this country, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that, Monique. It is so much more prevalent than even me as a Black male was aware of with my Black and brown sisters, like this, these negative experiences and, and close calls, I mean, this is like a common thread. I, I can't believe how much this is coming up in the conversations um we're having. And I also appreciate you sharing that very personal note. And I think when we think about health equity, you've grounded you've grounded it in a lot of reality, which which is important because that's really what this is about. Um, thank you so much. So I asked every guest this question. You've shared a lot, but why are you in on health equity? You yeah,
0: know, I think it's the one thing we have a chance at, you know. There are a lot of things that we can spend our time on. There are a lot of things, uh, ways that we've gotten along in the world. But it's clear that this is something that we can change. It has to be intentional, right? We have to be about it all the time. It has to be about the questions we ask. It has to be about the way that we do and practice things and always kind of thinking through, well, why has to be in the way that we design. Um, And it's fundamental, you know, because there's nothing more fundamental than the idea to live, right? You this is life. You're living or you're dying, right? Um, And healthcare is a fundamental part of living or dying. (laughs) So when you talk about equity and you talk about it from a health perspective, you're talking about all the pieces that allow you to live and be well. Um, So for me, that's why, you know, it's extraordinarily personal, as I've shared, but it's also fundamental in the way that we think about the way that social structures, um, the way that power and resources all come together Um, in the
1: arena of health. It really gives us a place to ground how we move forward in a very intentional way. Thank you so much. Um, So for our guests, uh, Dr. Monique Smith, founding executive director of health design at Emory University, a practicing emergency room physician. She shared with us so much wisdom, not just on the clinical work she does, but how to think about digital inclusion and innovation. So thank you so much for that, Monique.
0: Thanks for having me, KP. It's been great.
1: Great. Thank you for joining us for the Inon Health podcast. For more information on this guest and other episodes, please go to www.inonhealth.com/podcast. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at Inon Health. Until next time, this is your host KP signing off.